Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The heat of summer is bearing down like never before. The Pacific Northwest was just hit with an unusually early extreme heat event. A heat dome just inundated large parts of Texas, and scientists say it's not going away. If you're feeling the heat, you're not alone. The average global temperature just reached new records. Today we'll hear about how Native people are observing and coping with the heat, and also get the rundown on the state health agency study that finds Native people are among those disproportionately affected. We're back after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Jill Freitas, filling in for Antonia Gonzalez. South Dakota's Tribal Relations Committee discussed the Indian Child Welfare Act at its latest meeting. SDPD's Zeta Abbott reports. The committee's third meeting comes shortly after the Supreme Court ruling upholding the Indian Child Welfare Act. The act, commonly called ICWA, aims to keep more Native children with their tribes and communities in adoption and fostering situations. B.J. Jones is the chief judge for Sisseton Wapaton. He is thinking about what the Supreme Court ruling means for representatives in Pierre. There's a lot of areas in South Dakota that are ripe for some good state legislation. And just because the Supreme Court has ruled that ICWA is constitutional, which is a great relief, and most tribes believe that to be the case, doesn't mean there aren't issues that can't be clarified by state statutes. Judge Jones says a South Dakota bill could address concerns about legal responsibility between the Department of Social Services and tribal courts. Two bills codifying ICWA into state law were introduced last legislative session, but they were voted down. Opponents said they wanted to wait for the Supreme Court ruling before enacting anything. Mickey Devine is the program director of Child Protective Services on the Lake Traverse Reservation and a member of the Tribal State Coalition. She told committee members the group plans to push for legislation supporting ICWA. I am asking for legislation because we are going to continue with that state ICWA law because those challenges to this and the challenges to our sovereignty are still coming and we need to be prepared. We want to care for our own children. We want to care for our own families here. We live here. 14 states have passed legislation in support of the Indian Child Welfare Act. That includes North Dakota, Nebraska, Iowa, and Wyoming. I'm SDPB's Zadia Abbott. The Borough of Indian Education recently extended a five-year contract of a program that provides additional mental health resources for tribal youth. Emma Vandernighty of the Mountain West Region reports on how it impacts more than 100 tribal schools in our region. The Behavioral Health and Wellness Program allows for both Indigenous students and staff from schools and universities to access resources. That includes telehealth counseling, a 24-7 crisis hotline, and on-site crisis support. Teresa Paul works for the Bureau and is the program lead. She said Indigenous people make up the majority of their clinical team, and they know these communities well. We're able to really engage in those types of interventions with people who are from the communities and who know how to do those interventions respectfully. Can't just tap someone to step into that role. It has to be folks that, you know, have gained that respect. The program is crucial for many American Indian and Alaska Native students. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among 8 to 24-year-olds in that demographic. Paul said it's their duty to protect their most sacred citizens, their kids. For National Native News, I'm Emma Vandenindy. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers South Pacific Division and Navajo Nation signed an agreement intended to improve USACE's support to Navajo Nation at Window Rock, Arizona this week. 
Services and any goods which the Corps may provide to the Navajo Nation under this agreement include full or partial services in the areas of planning, design, engineering, consultation, technical support and training, and construction activities. The Army Corps says the purpose of this agreement is to establish a mutual framework governing the respective responsibilities of the parties for the provision of goods and services for NN projects. I'm Jill Freitas. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Vision Maker Media, envisioning a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. 45 plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org. Support by the National Indian Education Association's 54th Convention and Trade Show held in Albuquerque starting October 18th. Education sovereignty, it begins with us. Early bird registration is July 28th at NIEA.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. There's a heat wave underway in Texas and the Southwest. Death Valley in California is expected to hit 127 degrees within a week. Phoenix is forecasted to be in the 110s. 115 degrees is expected in South Texas. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has been tracking extreme heat for the past seven years and finds the lack of trees and a high number of heat-absorbing surfaces mean low-income urban areas are disproportionately affected by high temperatures than more affluent areas. That's just one among many studies over the years that show people of color are affected by extreme heat more than the general population. Today on our show, we'll hear from experts as well as those having to adapt to the trend for hotter temperatures than in the past. We also want to hear from you. Do you work out in the heat? Are you struggling with hotter summer days? Join our conversation with your comments or questions by calling in at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. You can also leave a comment on our social media pages like Facebook or Instagram. We've got three guests on our show today. Joining us first from the San Javier District of the Tohono Autumn Nation in Arizona is Duran Andrews. He's the farm manager at San Javier Co-op Farms, and he is Tahana Otham. Duran, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Sean. Thank you. Uh, first of all, let me say it's, it's an honor to be on the show. I'm a great listener, and you guys have amazing stories. So thank you for inviting me. Uh, we sure do appreciate those warm words, Duran. Thank you again for joining us. In Salt Lake City, Utah, we have Dave Lawrence. He's a meteorologist and emergency response specialist with the National Weather Service. Dave, welcome. Thank you so much, Sean. Always a pleasure to be with you. 
And speaking with us from Squim, Washington, is Robert Knapp. He is the Environmental Planning Program Manager for the Jamestown Sklalem Tribe. Robert, greetings to you as well. Thank you. Great to be with you. Well, folks, let's get this conversation here started. Hot days of summer 2023. Duran, I'd like to begin with you. And of course, southern Arizona is notorious for its extreme heat. Exactly how hot is it getting now where you are in that part of the state? I think the best place to ask. I mean, Arizona has been dealing with high heat temperatures for so long, and we are the desert part of the of the, of the state here, or the country. Um, right now, lately, we've been consistently in the 105 temperatures daily. Um, we see highs of like 115, 114 sometimes in the good parts of the day, uh, especially here on the farm. You know, um, the, the heat, island, heat island effect of the city close by um, Jason, which would be Tucson, uh, definitely plays a big factor of us. Um, but we also, um, being a farm, play a role in kind of bringing that down. Um, when you leave the city of Tucson, which I'm pretty sure is a 110, 115 consistently, you probably lose about 10, 10 degrees coming onto the farm. Uh, you can see a difference in the temperature that we, we affect, um, but also it is it is a struggle. You know, we we have staff here on site that um, work during the day, work during the night. Um, it's, it's it's a struggle. You know, we've we've seen a um, number of high temperatures consistently consecutive days, um, and it's only getting worse. You know, we've we've um, adjusted our our schedules for staff. Um, what we can only do for so much. Um, sales have to happen during the day most of the time too. So it's you know we do have to be in the sun. Um, but being that we are Don Autumn and our the name translated means desert people, you know, we've, we struggle with uh, heat all our lives and all our generations. So um, learning to adapt is just basically what we're doing now. Now, you mentioned about 105 degrees daily. That's about 10 degrees less than Tucson. What, what accounts for that difference, Duran? Is it elevation? Is it just the mountain ranges in that area? Why such a big difference between there and Tucson? We're we're just adjacent. If you look at it, we're just right over the freeway right here, uh, I-19. Mm -hmm. uh, if you go uh, to the north side of the farm, it is the South Tucson where you see Valencia and Mission Road um, intersection. So it's we're just right next to the city, um, and it's amazing how much of that temperature changes. But I do believe it's because of uh, the practices we've done here on the farm, um, regenerative agriculture, kind of in that area, um, not spraying any kind of pesticides, herbicides, any kind of additives, um, working with the environment to uh, get the best out of what we can from it. Um, and I believe that is just, it, that's what accounts to that change in difference in temperature. You know, the practices that we've done here on the farm to make sure that uh, we're working with nature and not against it. It's really remarkable then that big a difference when, when your communities are so adjacent like that. Well, tell us more about these crops. How are they able to withstand these high temperatures and what specific types of crops are you growing? Well, uh, our crops have been grown in the desert for so for generations. Um, to, to name three off the top, you know, the 60 day corn, is one of our uh, main traditional crops, and it is a, it, what its name entails. It, it grows in 60 days from the day you plant it, um, and that's a it's it's a survival method to be able to adapt to the heat. Um, the, the the information that this seed has taken in over the years from the environment, um, mainly the weather, uh, helps it be more adaptable. Um, other other types of crops on top of that would be the tempeh beans. You know, tempeh beans are are widely known for being drought tolerant, um, very deciduous. Um, they're great for the environment here. Um, one of the benefits we do get, of course, is being able to um, irrigate them ahead of time, sprout them. Um, and once they get fully established, we'll pull back on irrigation um, just to mimic that stress they get from the environment, um, but also to time it right with, with, the, with the summer monsoon rains. 
And how do you handle the irrigation chores with these crops, Duran? Uh, well, we at the farm have a pretty uh, up-to-date irrigation system. Everything is um, um, underground piping, uh, alfalfa valves. We do flood irrigate here. Uh, it is inefficient um, with the um, type of weather we deal with here, but um, adaptation, of course, and understanding how the environment works. One of the things we recently noticed in our past irrigation session is that we've been using a lot to ET um, while well, adjusting to that environment. Um, Evapotranspiration loss, we uh, irrigate at night and not during the day. Uh, when it gets to the 90-degree temperatures, we shut irrigation off so that we're not losing water to the atmosphere as opposed to getting it to the plants. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And Duran, you, you shared how many of these crops that you're growing have been grown for centuries there among your people. But are, are you noticing changes in these crops and how they grow or in how they're adapting to these higher temperatures? Or are they pretty much responding the way they always have over the decades and generations? I would say they're responding the way they always have. Um, of course, when there's change, they adapt as they need to, to in order to survive. Um, I can go back to the 60-day corn, for example. Um, if, if we plant it late or if it goes in the ground late um, and the so the, the plant senses the temperature change in the atmosphere, whether that be the rain coming, it'll start pushing out corns and ears automatically because that's the survival. Um, and that's the way it understands uh, to be activated by the environment, of course. So again, generations of coding a lot of this, uh, this information into the genetic seeds, it's, it's, been, it's been years. And these seeds were, um, aren't just seeds that we can go through Johnny supply, Johnny's um, seeds in order or even tractor supply and goodbye right offhand. Um, these seeds were donated by the establishment of the community members, the landowners that put the farm together to create the cooperative. So this, these are generational seeds and uh, we've been only keeping up that generation since. Fascinating, fascinating. Duran, uh, how about livestock or other types of animals? Do you deal with any of, of those issues there on the farm? And if so, how are they being impacted by the heat? Uh, yes, we deal with them, uh, both on a uh, local community side where they're coming into the fields and eating, um, just breaking in basically, and then to where we did a feasibility study with the 40 head of Black Angus cattle, um, I'm going to say about a year ago, just to see the effect that they had on the farm. Um, it's been, it was a great study. It was a great outcome. Cows and livestock, um, I am a, I'm a farmer, so I'm not a rancher. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I do deal with the cows, but they, they can be a hassle. Um, and they gave us a, a big work last year trying to deal with them. Uh, we since then sold off a, um, a number of them and we kept uh, six back for community um, usage and donation, for example. Um, but they, they they struggle, you know, even that, the black angus cows, you know, they, being at 100, 100 degree temperatures, they struggle. Um, but we also try to um, make sure that they're taken care of for, have water, they have shade, um, making sure that they're um, basically safe. <laughs> Um, uh -huh. that, that also goes for the, the maverick cows and livestock. When horses come out to property, we, got, we just want to make sure they're okay. Um, safety is priority, not only for just staff, uh, but for animals, of course. So um, It is a daily thing with the livestock, of course, the local livestock. <laughs> and, and, of I, course... I think, going back to that side, is they're coming onto the farm because uh, we irrigate, we have lush fields. Um, the local outside community, they struggle because of the drought, because of the issues with the heat. There's not a whole lot of stuff growing out there. Uh, we also understand why they're coming here because we, we kind of get food. Well, that irrigation system must really help there with regard to the livestock. And uh, Duran, how about the people, uh, your employees and volunteers that, that work there at the co-op and a lot of them are outside for long periods of time? How do they cope? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, it's, uh, we all have our methods. Um, 
you know, for me, I, I personally, I have a limit temperature of 115. Once they get to that 115 temperature, I slow down a lot because <laughs> it's, you know, it, I've, I've experienced heat exhaustion. Um, you know, I've gone to the hospital for heat problems, and I, and I don't think anybody should have to go through that. Um, there are signs that your body gives you for um, certain things reach a, a threshold um, in order to, uh, to keep you safe. Um, and I've learned that over the years and teaching that to other people, um, teaching that to staff, um, keeping an eye on not just yourself but others, um, has been one of the main things we do here at the SPAR, um, as, well as, as well as understanding um, the timing of the day. You know, people come in early to get their stuff done before it gets hot around 1 or 2 o'clock and they leave for the day. As the peak temperature comes in, everybody's gone, every work's all done. Um, we try to stay ahead of that. Uh, but as well as, you know, I've seen some people, like, like for example, we, we try to cover up completely. You know, I've, you, when you think about the sun, people wear shorts and tank tops. You know, for us here at the farm, it's long sleeve shirts, long sleeve, uh, full length pants, a full hat, you know, gloves, mm -hmm. mask. You want to be protected from the sun because it definitely does a number to the skin. Uh, but not only that, but a number to your body, your brain, you know, if you don't, um, if you don't be cautious. So it's education um, and then just reminding people, be careful, you know. And on top of that, water. Making sure everybody has water um, all times of the day and uh, making sure everybody's hydrated. Duran, the fact that your personal temperature there where you have to, to start taking extra precaution is 115 degrees, I find it really amazing because I know with me, I couldn't even get close to 115 degrees and I would be down for the count. So really, really admirable and interesting. And perhaps as a person of the desert as you are, maybe your people have adapted to those higher temperatures biologically as well. Perhaps we can talk about that after this next break. But anybody listening to the show, give us a call, 1-800-99-NATIVE. We'll be right back. Tribes in California warned state transportation officials more than two decades ago that a proposed highway expansion crossed sacred grounds. Now, after workers found remains of multiple relatives, the $70 million project is shut down indefinitely. We'll talk about what went wrong with the Owens Valley Highway project and get updates on other projects on the next Native America Calling. You out there, from round dance to exhibition dance, you always come prepared. Why not do the same with your health? Schedule your wellness visits and never miss a beat. Contact your local Indian health care provider for more information. Visit healthcare.gov slash coverage or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. ICAD. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about the heat. Tell us what you think. Is your community seeing higher than normal temperatures more frequently? How are you managing the heat outside or inside your home? Join our conversation with your comments or questions by calling in at 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. We have Duran Andrews on the line. He's with the San Javier Co-op Farms on the Tejona Autumn Nation in Arizona. And Duran, you've been talking about how you folks manage the heat there on the farm with regard to livestock, with regard to people, with regard to plants. But I also want to ask you a little bit about the history and culture of your people. And what have you learned over the generations and even the millennia with regard to, to how to handle the heat and sun there in that part of the country and just how to thrive like you folks have been doing for so many generations? 
Uh, I think first thing that comes to mind, like I just mentioned, is full coverage, um, being protected from the sun completely. You know, uh, you see pictures of elders here from the southwest, and they have those. Um, the ladies have the headband covering their heads. You know, that's some, that's for protection. I'm pretty sure. Um, mm -hmm. You see the men; they have these the big hats and the long sleeve shirts. You know, it's just really about protection from the sun. Um, and and in our understanding, it would be respect. You know, because uh -huh. the sun is powerful. The sun is the it's one of the elements of nature, and the elements are some of the strongest things uh, within this planet. You know, they they can possess both life and death if, if not used right um, and, and not respected. And the sun definitely living in Arizona is a big factor in the environment and the big presence of an element. <laughs> um, I've seen temperatures as high as 120, you know, and at that point, I think people shouldn't be outside. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would think not. No, <laughs> it's it, it's really it's 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 intense, you know. And uh, in the years over the years growing up, it was always that and just that teaching of respect the sun. You know, if you're gonna do something, go out and do it early and get out of the sun. You know, if you're gonna get up late and do it, then you have to understand it's gonna be hot. <laughs> but it's just that respect, you know. And from from my perspective as a young Native American, um, technology has has helped us understand it a whole lot. You know, forecasting the the the, the invention of meteorology, you know, it has changed um, people's understanding of how to work and how to live in the environment. Um, that definitely helps us here at the farm. You know, we we we, we incorporate much of traditional as we as we can, but technology definitely keeps helps us um, stay on top of it. You know, um, looking at forecasts, being able to understand. The future uh, days ahead, as well as coming rains, um, planning for work to be done before the rain comes, because I think that's how we've been taught uh, growing up: is the rain is coming, the monsoons are coming. Um, plants have the seeds have to be planted, everything has to be ready uh, for the rain to come through. Because we flood irrigate here on the farm, and um, and that's because of a historical method that our people have used called auction farming, uh, where we dam off rivers and our rivers or waterways to divert water to where we need them into our gardens, but um, only the amounts we needed. We never completely cut off a river to um, preserve that water for us alone. It was uh, diverting a certain amount what we needed, and then diverting that water back into the system. Now that was auction farming, and that was all timed with the rains because that all that water came from the rain. So, again, mm -hmm. respecting the elements and understanding how they work together because the heat it, it, it gets hot, and yes, it's 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 a nuisance and a burden, but we need the heat to be able to get the moisture we need build up for the convection and things like that for the monsoon rains we have here. You know, so it, it, it all plays a role. It all is needed. Um, we just have to work through it. And that teaching has been given to us over the years, just respect the, uh, respect the environment, and respect the elements. Duran, thank you for sharing all of your expertise on our show today. I want to go to the phones now. We have Alfred, who's listening in Warm Springs, Oregon, on station KWSO. Hello, Alfred. Hey, good morning. How's everybody? We're doing great. We're doing great. We're dealing with the heat. Yeah, it's going to be triple digits here, and naturally it's Warm Springs, Oregon. It's going to be hot, but still, I wanted to uh, talk about what's going on. Um, I'm a first food gatherer, and this temperature has really messed with the timing and the amount and the time that you have to go gather and stuff. That It's a, it's a really noticeable difference in how hot it is. You know, everything's it's coming literally... 30 to 60 days earlier than it used mm. to and it just kind of thrown everything off and it really you know it puts a premium on getting out there and getting your stuff so um i don't know 
I think we're crazy here. We're not into solar. I mean, we should be, you know, that's <laughs> off the subject, but still, it's so hot, you know, I, I don't understand why we're not going that route, but, um, but I just wanted to say that about the first foods, and it's really, it's really, I mean, because our berries are coming. They're already changing, and it's, it's almost time. So soon. Know? So soon. Alfred, thank you for calling in. And uh, yeah, definitely underscores the importance of, of getting up early and getting started with these hot days. And let's talk a little bit more about these hotter temperatures uh, throughout much of the U.S. And of course, we have Dave Lawrence on our show, who's with the National Weather Service. And, and Dave, I want to ask you, are we seeing hotter than usual temperatures throughout the United States or is it more centralized in, in, in certain parts of the country? Well, yeah, excuse me, I, I apologize. First off, I am still fighting a cold over the last week, so hopefully my voice will hold out. But uh, the, the basic trend so far this summer, with the exception of the last, say, one to two weeks, has been for a very persistent weather pattern, uh, obviously coming off the heels of uh, very cool and wet in some areas of the West uh, for this winter season, while other areas were actually quite warm and dry across the North. That has been a very persistent pattern up through June uh, but we are seeing things flip pretty quickly now where we've seen uh, building heat across much of Texas, parts of the southwest with record-setting temperatures here uh, over the last 30 or 45 days. And we're going to see those, those heat, the very hot conditions expand uh, to a good portion of the western U.S. Uh, over the next uh, two to three weeks, it looks like, uh, with a high potential for some more record-setting heat uh, building over more of the country and on the flip side of that, though, you know, sometimes where it's uh, been quite warm so far, we're actually going to see things cool down for portions of the Great Lakes. But nonetheless, the big story over the next couple of weeks for sure will be an expanding dome of heat uh, really over much of the western U.S. and also along much of the southern tier of the Gulf Coast and including into Florida as well, where Florida has been experiencing some extreme heat over the last 45 days or so as well. And David, what are we seeing in terms of coordinated responses, cooling centers or other types of programs or, or emergency services to to help folks weather these higher temperatures? Absolutely. Great question. And, and we have seen that response. Uh, one of the very interesting things, and I have to give a, a big shout out to Duran. I, I think he could give some great weather talks and had some great weather safety tips as well. And he mentioned the advent or the increase in and forecasting capability, and, and it really has been remarkable how much improved weather forecasts are, especially getting into that one to two week time frame. You know, the, the first couple of days aren't overly that difficult to forecast in most cases, but it's what are the trends? And so being able to get this word out uh, and saying, hey, you know, the next couple of weeks look really hot, uh, and the partnerships that the National Weather Service has with emergency management, with Native American tribes. We have these amazing partnerships with uh, local, state, federal, tribal officials uh, to get that word out ahead of time and say, hey, uh, you probably should start planning for the potential of extreme weather. And this is a, a great example so far this year where we've seen those relationships uh, really paying off dividends uh, way ahead of time to allow the opening of additional cooling centers or to get that heat messaging out in front of people, not only just from the National Weather Service, but through the media, uh, through folks like yourself just saying, hey, this uh, is important to know. And uh, those relationships that uh, we have, we're very thankful for. And they've paid off, like I said, dividends so far, and we'll continue to see those build. Thank you, David. Let's go. Uh, we've got a couple more callers on the line. First up is Michael listening on KNBAQ in Anchorage, Alaska. Good morning, Michael. What's the temperature today in Anchorage? Good morning. It's about 
about 50-ish, 60-ish. It's, it's been, uh, it's been, it was a really cold winter, and then, and then it, uh, then it rained all spring, and, and then it got, it stayed cold, and, but the past couple of days, it got, it got, uh, I was dressed for the weather, so I started sweating, so I knew it's warming, warming, finally warming up here. Got but it, got it, it, yeah. They had to start fundraising for for air conditioners for uh, nationally, federal, state, and tribal, and have a one one eight hundred uh, line for people to call these elders, especially the elders, and even uh, other races. You know, they but the, the companies can actually donate air conditioners, and it's actually a tax write off. Okay. All right. Good information. Thank you, Michael. Uh, listening on KNBA up in Anchorage, Alaska. And I want to go back to David quickly and respond to that. Uh, our caller mentions a program that where people can get access to air conditioners. And uh, David, I, I think a lot of times when, when we hear about these really high temperatures or if we live in an area with really high temperatures like in southern Arizona or parts of New Mexico, a lot of folks just say, hey, no worries. I'm just going to blast my AC. I'm going to crank it up when I'm at home. I'm going to crank it up in my car. But I mean, what's the impact of so many AC systems that have to run longer and harder to deal with these higher temperatures? You know, so I, I will tell you, I'm not an expert necessarily in that, but one of the, the biggest impacts that we've seen with this increasing trend for uh, more frequent and more intense heat waves is they're impacting areas, uh, sort of as you were alluding to, where folks may not actually have AC uh, because in the past, say the past 50 years, they haven't needed it or it was not worth the investment. And some great examples of that are places in the Pacific Northwest, uh, Seattle, uh, some areas around the Portland metro area, uh, the San Francisco metropolitan area where we have you know millions of folks living that in the past we have not seen uh, these frequent heat events like we've seen, say, in the last 20 to 30 years. So it's, it's balancing is the, the cost of upgrading that infrastructure really worth it mm -hmm. based on the trends we expect going forward. So I know that doesn't directly necessarily answer your question, but uh, nonetheless, uh, from an air conditioning uh, you know, dynamics perspective, those machines are essentially taking the heat from inside a building and dumping it to the outside air. So one could probably assume that uh, you know, that just continues to pump additional heat into the uh, outside conditions. Right, right. Yeah, that's the science behind it. And and I can relate to what you say about a lot of communities not needing air conditioners. I was just in Juneau, Alaska a couple of weeks ago, and the hotel didn't have any air conditioning. Most of the buildings didn't have AC. And I learned that that's really kind of a luxury there in that part of the, of the country, not really needed in most cases. So good information here on Native America calling today. Anybody else with a question or a comment, give us a call. We're talking the heat. 1-800-996-2848. And let's go back to the phones where we have Jordan, who's listening on KUNM in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hello, Jordan. Hey, Sean. How you doing? Can you hear me? Loud and clear. Loud and clear. You're doing a great job. And like your last caller said, I appreciate you bringing these, all the issues that you brought for years, you know, to the forefront. But I just want to relate. I used to live on Ridgecrest here in, Albu here in Albuquerque, but, um, and uh, I conserved my you-know-what off. And now I live in my mom passed away in February. And um, so I'm living in a gated community. And, um, you know, I conserve just like I did when I lived in a non-gated community, so to speak. Um, but it just galls me that I look out my window. And, you know, I love the ducks that I see out there. And But at 2 in the afternoon, they're running the sprinklers, you know. And it's like, I mean, that's common sense. And it's also 
kind of I think a city ordinance, if I'm not mistaken, that you know at least here in Albuquerque that you don't run your sprinklers between I think it's ten and two or something. But uh, so I just wanted to, I guess it's more of a disheartening I guess thing to say that like you know why here am I here I am conserving you know and you know don't run the, the or don't do dishes and I mean I don't want right. to say the state of my kitchen but um you know what I mean <laughs> um, but then but. But then you they're raise, like running the sprinklers at two in the afternoon, you know. So absolutely, absolutely, David um, Jordan, you raise a really good point uh, with regard to that. And I want to go back to David because David, what I think our caller Jordan is alluding to is, you know, he's doing his best, right? He's trying to to make that effort, but then he looks outside and, and he sees sprinklers going. And I think so often, you know, everybody kind of wants to point the finger at someone else, and it's like, yeah, maybe I drive a big car or a truck or something like that, but they say to themselves, oh, but my carbon footprint, it's nothing compared to these big factories and airplanes and things like that. So what do we need to do collectively as a society to to really get a handle on on these heat issues that just seem to keep growing and growing as the years go by? Well, and that's, it's a great question. I really appreciate that, Jordan. And, and it's it's an education issue in the uh, grand scheme of things. And we are very slowly um, starting to see some strides made, uh, particularly in the Western U.S., where, you know, we've seen uh, on average the last 20 to 30 years a very prolonged drought with a couple of exceptions, uh, this particular last winter being one of those where some areas saw some, some very much needed water, thankfully. But with that ongoing drought, we started to see a lot more um, state-driven, in some cases federal, but mostly state and county-driven um, messaging of, hey, it's very important to conserve water. And unfortunately, that will never reach 100% of the population, just statistically speaking. Uh, but if you look actually at, at the numbers in many of these states, especially in the last uh, two to five years, we have seen some tremendous strides made. Uh, I'm speaking particularly to the western U.S., obviously, with a very dry climate, uh, where these We've conserved, you know, in some cases, 20 to 40 percent more water than what was conserved, you know, say in the two to five years prior to that, where we had folks wasting water. Unfortunately, as I mentioned, getting that 100 percent buy-in, uh, some people just don't, I think, really truly appreciate um, what kind of a resource water is, especially uh, for those areas maybe east of the Rockies where, you know, moisture is, is more abundant. The reservoirs don't tend to deplete as quickly. Um, but in the West, of course, specifically, um, water is it. You know, without water, there is no life out here, and there's no agriculture. Um, so it's it's just getting buy into folks, um, and it's also uh, you know no one wants anyone tattling on their neighbors. You know, that's not the kind of society I think most people want. But just continuing to press those issues at a local and state level to really try to get folks to get that buy in, and hopefully with time that trend we've seen will continue of folks saying oh, yeah, I don't need to water during the hottest parts of the day, or I don't need to water maybe because I, I watered two days ago, but it hasn't been that hot for this stretch. You know, just uh, getting that educational component in place. Duran, I want to go back to you. We're going to have to take a break in about another minute and a half, but what are your thoughts on water and energy conservation efforts? Uh, um, in a time like this, definitely it's need to say water. Um, like that, like I talked about our irrigation method here is very inefficient, but there are methods, uh, there are, sorry, there are programs out there that are converting um, flood irrigation fields to like subsurface drip. Um, that's a great way of conserving water. Um, other places are using center pivot systems. Uh, we're looking at extending here at the farm uh, an additional thousand acres, and then that's all going to be center pivot operations. 
again, conserving water, um, lowering that water usage. Um, there's definitely a big demand in agriculture for saving water um, in any type of way, uh, especially here in Arizona where the water is so scarce um, and they're pumping in so many miles to get it to us. Um, CAP project is what I'm kind of referring to, but it, it's very important. Um, I, I, as the energy side, um, I can only point to solar. I don't. <laughs> I know there's a lot of uh, money and costs that come behind it, but definitely there's a lot of potential in solar here in Arizona. Mm -hmm. Well, you certainly got a lot of sunlight there that you can take advantage of. Folks, give us a call today. Tell us how hot it is where you are, whether you're in the western part of the United States, the central part, the eastern part. We'd really like to hear from some more callers today. 1-800-996-2848. Heat wave underway in the southwest and other parts of the United States. We'll be right back. Summer vacation time is here, and you're invited to get to know Albuquerque, New Mexico. The Mariachi Spectacular Concert and Conference brings vibrant artistic, cultural, and ethnic mariachi maestros to teach and share the culture of the music and its history. Legends such as Stefan Carrillo, Mariachi Cobre, and Jose Hernandez of Sol de Mexico provide a truly unique and extraordinary music and educational experience July 12th through the 15th. The Albuquerque Hispano Chamber of Commerce's Convention and Tourism Department supports this show. You're listening to Native America Calling. We're continuing our conversation about extreme heat and its effects on people, communities, animals, crops. Still plenty of time to join this conversation, so give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Our phone lines are open, 1-800-996-2848. Let's move now to the Pacific Northwest where we have Robert Knapp up in Squim, Washington, Environmental Planning Program Manager for the Jamestown Sklalem Tribe. And Robert, please tell us how this extreme heat is affecting your community up there in Squim, Washington. Thank you, Sean. Yes. Um, well, as Dave mentioned, we're kind of in a cool time right now. It's it's in the 50s and blissfully foggy and really enjoying that. But um, we have had some run-ins with heat in 2021. Um, there was a heat dome over the Pacific Northwest that uh, killed quite a few people and got um, up into the high 90s and hundreds here, which is very rare for us. And we are, unlike the folks who um, are used to that, we are not, we are not set up to that, okay. set up for that. Robert, could you quickly explain to our listeners, what exactly do you mean by a heat dome? Um, well, that might be a great question for Dave, but um, it's just a prolonged period where it was, where the heat just sat here on top of us. And it didn't, we normally have cooler evenings, even when we have warm days and it, it didn't cool off in the evenings. And uh, like I say, it was very unseasonably hot for us. Um, getting up to 116 degrees in Portland and breaking a lot of records. Almost almost all of our high temperature records were set then. That's extreme for sure, 116 degrees in Portland. Now that was 2021 and here we are two years later and uh, it sounds like it's pretty manageable right now, kind of a balmy 55, 60 degrees, but are you anticipating hotter days to come this summer, Robert? Um. Yes, I, I think so. And and one thing I'll mention, 
um, we had a pretty cool and wet winter and we had really good snowpack. So we were looking forward to, you know, hopefully what would be good, good, cool water in our streams for our salmon. And then we had about a week of unseasonably warm weather in May and almost all that snow melted away and and we just had a declaration of a of a drought watch and probably will have a drought emergency so even though it's been relatively cool we're still struggling with with periods of heat that um are are causing problems and one thing i'd also mention you know the the heat domes and the the really high temperatures get a lot of the the media coverage, and rightfully so, those can be very dangerous and damaging. But um, with our mountains here, just a few degrees of difference in average temperature can be the difference between precipitation falling as rain and snow, and, and that can leave us with severe um, conditions in the late summer, early fall, when, our, when salmon are trying to return to our streams. That's good. Good to point that out, Robert. And I also understand you're seeing impacts on trees and shellfish as well as other types of animals and plant life. Can you talk about that? Yes, yes, we're we're quite concerned. Um, during the heat dome, there was, you know, it happened to have our highest temperature during one of our lowest tides of the year. So the the clams were very exposed and out in that hot temperature for a long period of time and so we've been studying the effects on that and um, but just the general temperature increase average temperature increase and increase in water temperature is having impacts on shellfish and salmon and and our forests we're starting to see a lot of trees dying a lot of stressed trees and and it's very concerning are you seeing more fires in, in the warmer months as well, forest fires specifically? Um, yes, we've been fairly lucky close by here, but but yes, there's been a number of fires and and we um, we get blanketed in smoke from fires from north of us and east of us and south of us. Um, so our unfortunately, I think our time is coming for forest fires, and it's it is a very concern for us. Mm -hmm. Now, Robert, about 10 years ago, the Jamestown Skullum Tribe uh, took the lead on creating a, a climate adaption or adaptation plan, I should describe it as. And, and tell us more about that. I mean, what prompted uh, that recourse and how is that going now? It's been about 10 years. Yes. Um, so tribal staff and tribal leaders we're seeing the impacts of climate change, and and we're concerned about it. And so they they uh, put together a committee and developed a climate vulnerability assessment and adaptation plan. And um, it was designed to provide provide strategic guidance on you know what hazards we were anticipating and and what we might do about that. And um, uh, I'm I'm really glad that the folks who came before me did that. It's been a great document for us, and it has inspired a lot of other tribes and other entities to do similar kind of planning. Um, and I looked back through it 
in preparation for this call and and a section on on temperature there isn't very much that that I would change even after 10 years so I think they did a, an amazing job of pulling that together I I think the only thing that they might not have anticipated how quickly things were coming at us um, is the only thing that maybe is would say a little differently now mm-hmm. well tell us more about some of uh, the activities and some of the the solutions that you folks have have been working on as part of this plan it sounds like it's been pretty successful if these temperatures have been able to remain relatively stable um, so yes we're um, we are continuing to think about ways that we can deal with heat and smoke and extreme weather in general. And um, one of the things that I don't think was really in people's minds back in in 2013, and um, I think Dave mentioned this, cooling centers. I think a lot of our communities are going to need to consider cooling centers. Uh, It was mentioned that people around here generally did not have air conditioning, Um, still a lot of people without air conditioning. And especially if you have elderly people and people who are in homes that don't have uh, good insulation and stuff, we need to have places for people to get out of the heat. We're just not adapted to that. And so I think cooling centers and resilience hubs are something we're looking into and trying to figure out how we can set up places where people can get out of these these uh, high temperatures when they come. And Robert, regarding cooling centers, what does a typical cooling center look like? Would it be like a school or maybe a community building? What's the approach think, there? Um, yes, if you have a you know, if your tribe has a community center or a or a school, um, those can be really good locations where you can gather people, where they can get in out of out of the weather. Um, get um, people use them as heating centers if you have extreme cold. So they can they can do a lot of different things. Um, if you put in good ventilation, they can also be a place where people can get out of uh, harmful smoke. So I think, um, yes, I mean, they can be big places or small places just as long as they can provide some relief from whatever extreme condition you're dealing with. And I know earlier um, it was brought up about about electricity and conservation. And one of the things that concerns me is that um, these extreme weather conditions put a big strain on our electrical grid. Um, you know, we saw that in Texas with the unusual freeze and in places where they've had to do brownouts because of extreme heat. And so I think, you know, combining cooling centers with um, some sort of backup energy supply, whether that's solar and batteries, so that we don't, you know, lose those crucial um, cooling centers or resilience hubs during the times when we need them most. That's a really good point as well, Robert, with regard to that electrical grid, because anybody who lives in an area that experiences a lot of heat, 
you know those blackouts come right in the middle of a really hot afternoon. Everybody's got that AC cranking and just it's too much for the system to manage. Thanks again, Robert, for joining us. And at this point, I, I want to bring in a fourth guest now. His name is Nelson Andrews, and he's joining us from the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe there on Cape Cod. He's an emergency management director and a tribal councilman as well. Hello, Nelson. Welcome to our show. Hey, yeah. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, tell us, uh, what are the temperatures like there in Mashpee now? And are you folks uh, gearing up for even hotter temperatures going forward? Yeah, so uh, right now on the Cape, uh, the temperatures are <clears throat> are pretty relatively like cool. It's, only, it's in the mid-70s right now. But uh, over our last weekend, during the powwow weekend, we had temperatures reaching upwards of 90 degrees. But um, mainly in this, at this time of year, uh, Cape Cod was surrounded by the ocean. You know, we can maintain about um, 80s, mid 80s, but we do we do have some, um, you know, some 90 degree days where which would prompt us to open our um, our cooling stations, et cetera. Cooling stations, and then what other efforts are you folks doing to combat the heat there on Cape Cod? So, um, our main concern always is uh, our elders um, and those that are most vulnerable. So, we'll provide them. With air conditioners, um, you know, it, um, our department will uh, apply for grants annually. And uh, after COVID, we were able to get um, some CDC grant funding, which which allowed us to get uh, air conditioners. So uh, typically, we'll provide air conditioners to those that are most vulnerable, and we'll install them um, primarily in the uh, you know elders' homes and uh, those that you know have have low income issues. Now. Nelson, traditionally there on the Cape, are were air conditioners used, or is that kind of a, a more recent occurrence? Well, I mean, it depends how far back you want to go, but yeah, it's definitely more the more recent um, occurrence. Um, obviously, uh, yeah, climate change has uh, impacted us as everyone else, and and the heat has increased here, even on Cape Cod, more so than it than it has been in the in the past. Um, our number one hazard within our hazard mitigation plan approved by FEMA actually is climate change, um, you know, due to the, you know, the, the increase in not only heat, but um, extreme weather patterns. All righty. Well, thank you, Nelson. And you mentioned climate change. And I want to go back to David because uh, this there was this Paris Agreement that many, many nations agreed to back in 2015. And, and the goal includes pursuing efforts that will limit global temperature rises to no more than 1.5 degrees, which is about just under three degrees Fahrenheit. And, and David, I've been kind of following this off and on for the last eight years. And I'm just curious, I mean, are we, are we in line with that goal or is there any way we're going to achieve that keeping that these increased temperatures at bay or are we kind of fighting a losing battle here? Well, that's a fantastic question, and, and I'm certainly not an expert in that regard, but I, I think um, it's, it's definitely a challenge because you look at the upward trend of temperatures, uh, even in the last 10 years, um, certainly we have seen you know certain periods of cooler conditions, but overall, if you look at the records being set, uh, they're on the warm side of the spectrum, you know, warm overnight low temperatures, warm daily high temperatures. So things continue to skew much warmer, and uh, 
you know, we, we even potentially, if you just look at the July 4th, I know some folks may have heard this, but it's uh, still looking at the numbers, but it's, it's possible, maybe even probable that we saw at least the warmest single day temperature record uh, across the, the globe for any given day in the modern record. Of course, that's about 150 years. So things are definitely continuing to skew on the warmer side. And as I mentioned, I'm, I'm not an expert on long-term climate change, more of the short-term uh, weather, but uh, but so far it has proven uh, somewhat difficult to get these temperatures uh, back down, just given the trajectory uh, that we've seen uh, the last couple of decades or so. And David, we focus so much on, on land temperatures, but what about the temperatures of ocean waters? Uh, we need to pay a lot of attention to those conditions as well, don't we? We do, and, and it's interesting and very timely that you mentioned that, uh, you know, just recently we set some so near all-time records for portions of the North Atlantic. Uh, now, that was on a shorter time scale, but it does show that there's a lot of heat built up in the oceans. And, and that does occur naturally in certain cycles. Uh, some of uh, the listeners may be familiar with these terms like El Nino and La Nina. Uh, it's very interesting and, again, timely that we are heading into what is increasingly looking like it could be a strong El Nino event in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, just really quickly, uh, what that means is – uh, the temperatures centered either side of the equator in the Pacific uh, are forecast to be uh, anywhere between 1 to 2 degrees Celsius above the long-term average. And that may not seem like a whole lot, but that's a vast body of water, of course. So to have those uh, temperatures be that much warmer uh, is very likely to have global uh, ramifications in the weather conditions the next one to two years. And uh, it's very likely we're already starting to see some of that signal play out uh, with some of this building heat uh, and increasing heat across much of the globe, uh, with, of course, the caveat, some of that is just naturally tied to the time of year where it is, you know, summer and it's supposed to be hot, but it's hotter than what we expect it to be from a long-term climate perspective. Mm -hmm. Well, as Robert mentioned earlier, even just a few degrees change uh, can impact mountains, can impact the salmon, it can impact the shellfish and trees. So lots to think about, lots to consider here on Native America Calling today with these increased temperatures throughout the United States. I want to say thank you to all of our guests today, Duran Andrews, Dave Lawrence, Robert Knapp, and Nelson Andrews for a great conversation on Native America Calling. Hope you'll join us again tomorrow when we'll hear about tribes halting a highway project in California after workers uncovered remains of ancestors. Until then, enjoy the rest of your day. Support provided by Amerind. Amerind is 100% tribally owned and partners with tribes and their businesses to provide affordable commercial insurance coverage, protect tribal sovereignty, and strengthen Native American communities by helping to keep dollars in Indian country. Information about property, liability, commercial auto, and workers' comp available at amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. OCO. From round dance to the exhibition dance, you always come prepared. Why not do the same with your health? Schedule your wellness visits and never miss a beat. Contact your local Indian health care provider for more information. Visit healthcare.gov coverage or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Quantic Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.